It's time for a healthy Which breakfast. Which is the number one chocolate for two drink. pizzas for the price of one. A taste so wonderfully fresh. That's a spicy meat. What women all over the developed world report is being more stressed and feeling more short of time than men. Welcome to The Secret Ingredient, a podcast that takes you into the depths of food history and production. We won't tell you what to eat, but we can tell you why you're eating it. For KUT, I'm Rebecca McEnroy. I'm Raj Patel from the Lyndon Baines Johnson School of Public Affairs. And I'm Tom Philpot from Mother Jones Magazine. So, the secret ingredient this week is economic man. And to help us understand how that works in food, economics, and the modern world is Katrine Marsal, author of Who Cooked Adam Smith's Dinner. Katrine is uh, a columnist for the Swedish newspaper Aftonbladet, and she joins us from her home in London. Uh, Katrine, before we explore what's at stake in the answer to the question, who cooked Adam Smith's dinner, who cooked Adam Smith's dinner? <laughs> well, the thing is, we don't know. But his mother, Margaret Douglas, did run his household for most of his life. And that's sort of the point in the question uh, that I ask in my book. Tell us a little bit more about this relationship. Adam Smith's dad, where's he in this picture? (laughs) Adam Smith's dad is dead. Um, (laughs) And Adam Smith lives with his mother in Scotland in the 1700s. And she's called Margaret Douglas. And she was very, very important to him, according to all of his biographers. However, you know, she's very absent in his own work. But, but she was a very, very important person to him. And she, whenever his household moved, she moved with him. And she made sure that everything worked. And she's, she's a kind of an invis, invisible presence in, in his life. That, that was very important. But, and, and from what age is he the head of the household? So that is quite, quite young. So Adam Smith, uh, she, she was 15 years Adam Smith Sr.'s junior, and they were only married for two years. And then he died when Adam Smith uh, Jr. was at the age of two. Adam Smith is the head of the household, yes. So tell us a little bit about this book. Why is this important? Why did you ask this question? And, <laughs> Why this question? What, because what it's the founding question of economics. Because in his book, The Wealth of Nations from 1776, Adam Smith asks this question, how do you get your dinner? And his very, very famous answer to that question, which you know, anyone who studied economics can quote backwards and forwards, is it's not from the benevolence of the butcher and the baker that we get our dinner. It's from them acting in their own self-interest. So what he means, obviously, is that the butcher and the baker, they don't make this food to be nice or because they like food or they like to eat or anything else. They do it because they want to turn a profit and they want to make money and they want to serve their own self-interest. And from this answer to this question, Adam Smith kind of puts self-interest at the center of the economic universe. And to him, self-interest has the same function almost in society as gravity has in Newtonian physics. So he was very inspired by Isaac Newton and wanted to kind of explain the laws of society in the same ways that Newton had explained the laws of the universe. And that's why this question is important. And what I do in the book is, well, I say, okay, this is the founding question of economics, but who actually cooked Adam Smith's dinner? And then we come to Margaret Douglas, his mother, who probably had quite a lot to do with how he got his dinner, even if we don't know exactly who cooked it or exactly what he ate. 
But she probably had a lot to do with this, and did she do this out of self-interest or out of something else? And yeah, that's how I start my book. It's clearly kind of an insane idea, and you show it so beautifully that people act for all different kinds of reasons, not just, you know, sort of narrow self-interest. And so it seems insane on the very surface, and yet it's been extremely influential in economics, right? Like for centuries. No, no, economics has even been called the science of self-interest. And so how do you explain the success of this idea despite its kind of self-evident absurdity, like to to dominate (laughs) economic thought for so long? Yes, I mean, to economists, it doesn't seem absurd. You know, people defend this very, very passionately, you know, when I go out and talk about this book. So it's not, it's definitely not dead. But I think people who tend to be more interested people who in novels or real life than most economists maybe are at least when they do their work they of course as you realize the the absurdity of, of this idea but it's been very very influential and we shouldn't blame just adam smith for this so this concept of the invisible hand is very important in economics which is kind of the idea that all of us act out of self-interest. I do whatever I need to do, what's best for me, you do what's best for you, and we don't have to think about each other or what's best for society as a whole because there's this invisible hand that will kind of take our self-interest and sort of stir it around and make it into what's best for all of us, kind of through some sort of magic. And this concept is very important in economics and or standard economic theory, and it explains, of course, why markets are perfect and can never make a mistake and why bubbles can't exist and all these things. However, Adam Smith only mentions this thing once. So it's it's kind of what people have taken from Adam Smith and this idea of self-interest from the wealth of nations. People, you know, after Adam Smith have sort of put a lot of emphasis on Adam Smith's actual work was quite more complex. But why it's so influential? I think it's a very seductive idea, don't you? (laughs) <laughs> Not so much. No? <laughs> I've never been wrong. But it, makes, it makes, you know, if everyone's acting after self-interest, we don't have to think about anyone else. And everything is predictable in society. There's this, this law that everything kind of boils down to. And it's easy. It's rational. It's predictable. We, have, we are in control. And I think that is a seductive thought to many people. I mean, it's very simplifying, right? And yeah. one thing I noticed as an undergraduate in the 80s, and so this is, you know, more than 20 years ago now, I knew people who were taking economics classes and majoring in economics, and they would complain that from the very beginning in these economics classes they were taking, you would assume away reality. You would assume a perfect market. You would assume all the players in the market had equal access to information. And, you know, essentially by the time you get to the problem you're working on, you've created this fictional universe. Yeah. And so it does simplify things, but it also doesn't tell us very much about the way things work, does it? No, exactly, because, I mean, the starting point is from this idea of, of self-interest, economics or economic theory creates this person, economic man, which is this, these assumptions that human being, in the way we are, that we are rational, we always act out of self-interest, we're not really run by our feelings or by other people, don't affect us, we are sort of without a context, uh, these isolated individuals who can come into any situation with little kind of calculators and calculate what's best for me in this situation. And that's how we act, economics assumes. And from this, it creates this whole universe, which can be expressed in beautiful mathematical equations. 
And in many ways, big parts of economic theory has become almost sort of an abstract art form, creating these equations within its own universe. And of course, you can do that if you enjoy that. But if you believe that economics should have something to do with the real world and that sort of the problems we have in the real world and with the economy in the real world are important enough and that we need to try to solve them, then you need an, an economic science that actually deals with them and is able to kind of express something that is real as well. But Katrina, I'm shocked at the aspersions that you're casting on economists and the vision of economics, because surely economics can even explain not only who cooked Adam Smith's dinner, but why she did it. I mean, if you look at the history of the Nobel Memorial Prize for Economics, Gary Becker, the economist of the household, can explain quite nicely why it is that Adam Smith found a woman to cook dinner for him. And that's because family relations can be modelled like a market. Surely, although we find ourselves falling into this language of homo economicus, of course, when you say men, you, you really mean men and women. And if you model the household like a market, surely that's just fine because you can come up with new and exciting findings. And proof of that is the fact that someone won a Nobel Prize for economics for modelling the household in just this way. Yes. What's wrong with Gary Becker? <laughs> well, I detect some irony in this <laughs> <Just> <laughs> um, I don't know. So what I talk about in the book is that Adam Smith forgot about his mother. And he asked this question, how do you get your dinner? And his answer was through self-interest, through the butcher and the baker's self-interest. He forgot who put the dinner on the table. And economic sins has never kind of cared about, or for a long time didn't care about, you know, how the dinner actually ended up on the table and why all the work that was done in the household was not considered work and it wasn't considered to have any economic value. And that still hasn't changed fully. For example, in GDP measurements, it's not counted. But it did change a bit in the 70s in Chicago, the Chicago School of Economics. And Mr. Gary Becker, who had this idea about that these standard economic theories, which are, you know, in some sense, kind of good at explaining the price of tomatoes. They could not just explain the price of tomatoes, but they could explain everything in the whole world. And this idea of rational, self-interested human beings was not just applicable within the field of economics, but everywhere. And he's famous for his work on kind of on the household. And he looked at men and women and why we do what we do at home. And there are a lot of interesting, interesting theories, as you allude to. And from this, this kind of economics, because you think that human beings are always rational, the market is always sort of a rational expression of that. And therefore, the market can never be wrong. It's very convenient. So if something exists on the market, for example, women are paid less for the same work as men, then that must be rational. And the, the task for the economist is just to explain why is it rational to pay women less than men or to pay black people less than white people, etc. And this is more or less what he did. And he came up with lots of interesting explanations. For example, that he writes about what does a man do when he comes home from the office? He sits down and reads the newspaper and watches television or something like that. What does a woman do when she comes home from work? She starts making dinner, doing the washing up putting the children to bed or whatever. So, of course, the next day, when this man and this woman come to the office, the woman is more tired than the man, so she can't perform as well in the office, and therefore it's rational to pay her less than the man. <laughs> <laughs> you can win a Nobel Prize in economics for that. So instead of getting compensated for her labor at home, 
it's subtracted from her pay on the job. Yeah, exactly. Wow. You can't win, can you? But you mentioned something earlier on that I, I want to press you on because I wrestle with this, which is imagine if women's work were valued and counted as part of GDP, for example. Would that make things better? Feminist economists have been campaigning for this and going on about this for 30, 40 years, and it still hasn't happened. Yes, I think I, you know, it wouldn't magically solve all of our problems, but yes, it would matter a lot, you know, just for the reason that we would get sort of a more accurate economic measurement especially in developing economies where the kind of informal sector, which is the sector around the house, you know, everything that you do, not just the, the cooking and the, and the cleaning, but there's a lot going on, going on there. It's, you know, walking every day to fetch water and firewood and these sort of things. That can be that type of economy, which is not counted at all, can be sort of, you know, 15, 18 percent of the whole cake of the whole thing. And it's completely invisible. And since most women are in that part of the economy, they are invisible. And if we want to know sort of what creates wealth in the society, I mean, real wealth, what creates real development, we need to look at those things. Lots of other kind of measurements, we just get a very, very inaccurate picture of what's actually going on in these economies. So yes, I do think it would make a difference. And also, I think, because these measurements, and I mean, GDP is something, it's so powerful, just the idea of GDP. It was originally a way of measuring war production and it's quite good in that sense but today we we see it as you know it's you know they talk about it on the news as a measurement of you know all kind of progress in society and that measurement would change quite drastically if we sort of counted this traditional care work of women in a way that would make a difference and also the picture of it for example if here in the UK where I live if you just put a value just to unpaid childcare which is something that is, is, is quite big, just put a monetary value to that. That value is bigger than that of the financial, whole financial sector in the wow. UK. And the financial sector in the UK is a lot bigger proportionally than what Wall Street is in America. So you, you get a sense of how big it is. And if you talk about the economy like that, you know, you, you kind of see it differently. And I think that would lead to political change. And you write, you know, extensively about economics, but what value do you put upon economic theory in how these relationships and these value systems are played out in life? Like, do you think that if Adam Smith would have counted the work of his mother in considering the value system of his meal, do you think that would have changed the way that society would be operating today? Yes, I do. I'm sure that there will be kind of sexist economists coming after Adam Smith who would just not pay attention to that if he had done that and they would still create something similar to what we have today. But I mean, I know that's, that's not what you, what you mean with your question. Yes, yes, I do think it would have been different because in many ways, I believe economics is sort of the religion of our time in the, in the Western world at the moment and for the last sort of 30, 40 years. It's so much more than just something that economists do and so much more than what's expressed in statistics and numbers. It's, it's a whole value system about self-interest, you know, go for it, entrepreneurship, entrepreneurship as something that an individual does, this idea of human beings as, as isolated atoms just guided by rationality and self-interest. You know, we do believe in that and it has a massive impact in sort of culture in a, in a wider sense, you know, books like Freakonomics and all these books that, which are about sort of applying this sort of quite simple market theory, simplified market theory, to lots of areas of our lives. There's a book that I'm quite fascinated by, came out a few years ago, called Spousonomics, which is all about how to apply these market 
principles to your marriage in order to improve it. So it's a big value system, and I think it creates financial crisis, and I think it also makes us unhappy. One way in the book that you really kind of beautifully Mm -hmm. explode classical economics, well, you talk about Robinson Crusoe, and then you go into this sort of commonly used economic fable about the two guys who show up on the desert island, and one has a big sack of rice, and the other one has 200 golden bracelets. So could you talk us through how that fable plays out in economics classes, and then give us your... You, in, you just obliterated it in a couple of sentences. Why it's so ridiculous? Economists love telling stories. I should say here, because there's going to be economists listening. And, you know, this is not all economists. There are lots of economists doing all kinds of work, which is not this kind of standard economic theory. But standard economic theory, which is still what we teach as sort of undergraduate courses in economics, it loves this idea of isolated individuals on a desert island. So that's why economists tend to love Robinson Crusoe, because it's that kind of fable. But this fable, which is often told to explain the concept of value, is about two men stranded on a desert island, and one of them has a sack of rice, and the other one two gold bracelets or something like that. And, of course, on this island, the gold bracelets there's no value in them because they cannot be used. So that's the point of that fable, and and that's why economists love to tell it. However, if you actually think of two men stranded on a desert island, they would probably, you know, not trying to trade gold bracelets against rice, but probably share the rice and discuss, you know, how the hell did we get here and how can we get home and, and, and started talking, which is what human beings normally do, which doesn't exist in economic theory, and that's why their assumptions often, you know, they go a bit crazy. Would you be able to read from a part of your book? Sure. Economic man doesn't have leaking breasts or hormones. He doesn't have a body. No baby has ever vomited on him, and no baby ever will. Studies show that since the 1970s, women in the West have felt that they have become less happy. It doesn't matter which class she comes from, whether she's married or single, how much money she earns, which country she lives in, or whether she has children. A typical woman in the West, with the exception of African-American women in the United States, is less satisfied with life. Men, on the other hand, have grown happier. Maybe it's the equality, or maybe we're measuring happiness the wrong way. Maybe these kinds of things can't be measured. The studies are disputed. Across Europe, both men and women report increases in happiness over the last 40 years, but men have been getting happier faster. In Britain, you find little difference between men's and women's happiness. The exception here is divorced fathers who are not happy. What women all over the developed world report, however, is being more stressed and feeling more short of time than men. It's neither class or occupation specific, it's gender specific. But when women admit that they feel this way, feminism is usually blamed. The fact that women are having a hard time being like economic man is taken as proof that women don't belong in the public sphere. They say that Ginger Rogers did everything that Fred Astaire did, except that she did it backwards and in high heels, and that's what women continue to do. Woman has entered the job market, but man has not entered the home in the same extent. Our ideas about the boundaries between work and family life haven't fundamentally changed. We try to cobble them together in different ways, rather than creating something new, a better way of life. Whichever way we turn, there seems to be a frightful lack of options. We now have a generation of women who feel they are failing at having it all. Many women today don't need male chain-smoking ad agency executives to look at them as if they were worthless. They look at themselves this way, even if they themselves are executives at the firm. 
Gloria Steinem says feminism wasn't about women getting a bigger piece of the pie. Feminism was about baking a completely new pie. This has proved to be easier said than done. We added women to the mix and stirred. An entire generation interpreted the slick proclamation, you can be anything, as you have to be everything. Having it all became doing it all. Otherwise, you're worthless. Katrine, can I use that passage to revisit the question I asked you earlier on, which is, look, if you add domestic labor, if you add uh, reproductive labor, if you add a new number to GDP, aren't you just adding women and stirring to fall prey to the idea that actually the, the, you know, what we need to do is just stuff more things into this gross domestic product figure? Not really, because if you add this number, you kind of destroy the GDP measurement as it is. And I think by adding this, and this is the critique you get when you, when you sort of talk, if you're a feminist economist and you talk about this issue with sort of a not feminist economist, somebody mm. who's very deeply invested in these standard economic theories, he, it tends to be a he, will say that, no, 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 because that, that will, it would sort of, it would ruin the measurement. It, it wouldn't be meaningful if we do that. But I think that is partly the point, because... Mm. I think what we need is not just not one measurement, but lots of them. And we need to talk about the measurements and discuss them and debate them and have kind of a much more messy, complex discussion about economics. And I think doing this thing to GDP, adding reproductive work and work around the household, will, 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 will do that. And I think that's why there's a reason why feminist economists have been fighting for so long. And there's a reason why kind of the establishment resists it, I do believe. It would be easy to do it. I mean, here in the UK, the Office for National Statistics, I mean, they say, yeah, sure, we could do this. It wouldn't be that hard, but we need the politicians to tell us to do it, and they don't. So the argument for adding women's work to GDP is really to break it, and yeah. to break it in a way that then forces us to think in polydimensional ways yeah, rather than just exactly. sort of the, the, the monomania. Of course, there are lots of indices around women's economic empowerment and the gender empowerment index and half a dozen others that Unifem, as it was then called. You can find these polydimensional things. You can find a lot of stuff from happiness studies. But is the reason you think that these have remained fairly marginal because people are still able to get a pure GDP number? Yeah. Um, and that if you if you make it impossible to do that, people will, will go... Well, to, no, to... I mean, I'm not going to ban it. <laughs> but, but I do think because it still is the official government agencies, this is what they come up with. And this is what we put most emphasis on. And this is what we report in the media. So yeah. But the trouble is, I mean, GDP is also a, a way of taxing things. And I mean, its its origins lie also in a government keen to know how much stuff there was that it could then tax. It seems very hard to separate the fight against patriarchy from then the fight against the state. Is there a way in which economics, the patriarchy of economics is shored up by the way that our governments work? How do you mean? Well, for example, I mean, this, this GDP example is Exhibit A. You don't like, I mean, I don't think anyone on this table is a particular fan of GDP, but to be able to introduce women's labor is already to break the main reason why GDP exists, which is for a government to be able to tax. And the state form needs to be able to tax things. And if you're going to tackle patriarchy, which we should, then don't we also have to tackle the way that the current sort of liberal, uh, you know, sort of capitalist state works? Yeah, absolutely. It's all sort of tied up in, this is uh, in many ways the religion of our time. This goes very, very deep. And of course, I mean, even so I'm Swedish, as was, was mentioned here, and we're often said to be this feminist paradise or 
Saudi Arabia for feminism, depending on the way you way stand. Uh, but in Sweden, with the extensive welfare state, which is very, very good at, at certain things, is very, very good, probably one of the best in the world, sort of helping people combine careers and with family life and the maternal and paternity leave and the American tourist that comes to Stockholm and asks, you know, what's up with all the gay nannies because there are so many dads around, they're pushing prams. And, <laughs> and all these sort of things, yes, Sweden is great for that. However, if you look at the Swedish famous welfare state, who actually works in the welfare state, in the sector, who are the nurses and social workers and, you know, everybody employed by the state or the local authorities, they tend to be women and they tend to be paid a lot less than men. And you talk about that the welfare state creates these kind of pink ghettos. So if, and that is, of course, a problem. And that is the welfare state, the famous Swedish welfare state, is built upon that idea that women's labor doesn't matter so much because this was a traditional work that women carried out in the home. And when it was moved in large parts of it, you know, childcare and looking after the elderly was moved into the sort of the state sector, Sort of the rationale was still, well, women used to do this for free. <laughs> Why should we pay them very much? And of course, if we had to pay them a lot, we have to have even higher taxes, which people don't want. So even in a Scandinavian welfare state, yes, it's, it's patriarchal. One question I have reading through your book is, you know, there's this thread in feminist economics that this sort of home care, this sort of domestic care should be paid. Mm. And I wonder how you come off on that. And one thing that comes to mind, you know, if you're going to, put it in GDP without compensating people for it, that seems a little weird to me. And, and I'm wondering if something like, would like a basic national income, which is an idea that gets bandied about periodically, which is I've heard people talking about recently, mm. would that be a way to, you know, sort of compensate people for domestic care? Like, okay, this, we've calculated that it's worth this much. And so the mean household is going to get this much in a basic income to compensate for this care. Is that, is that a good idea? Have, have you thought that through? I have not thought it through that much. So what I did with the book, or what I tried to do with the book, I don't know if it was successful, but I wanted you know, people to be able to read it. You could be like a socialist or a conservative and still read this book and say, okay, there is kind of a women's problem in economics which should be corrected. And then you can draw different conclusions from that you know, based on your on your politics. You know, basic income, of course, something that's discussed a lot at the moment. That could be one solution. I can see a lot of problems with it, given that, you know, there's still the ideas that we have about men and women. It would probably be sort of more women taking advantage of, of this for staying home. And there's a risk that this could become kind of a poverty trap for women. But of course, it depends on how you, how you construct all of these systems. You know, my own politics, so I'm a Swedish social democrat, so that wouldn't be basic income. It would be more kind of state-run programs that to help people sort of share care responsibility in, in certain ways. That would be kind of more my emphasis. But I do think that the basic income discussion and debate is very interesting. But I think there's, there's lots of solutions to this. And it's not kind of, oh, there's one way of, of doing feminist economics or one kind of policy conclusion to, to draw. I think there's, there's lots of them and we can, have, we can have arguments about it. But what I want to do is just kind of point out, look, all of economics, this got this big, massive flaw in it. And before we can have any kind of meaningful debate about these issues, we need to correct that. After someone reads your book, what would you like them to do? I would like them to kind of pick up the Wall Street Journal and the Financial Times if they haven't done that before and start 
reading those kind of publications and not being afraid of economics, because many people are afraid of the language of economics, the words of economics. Yeah, it's very intimidating. And I want people to stop feeling intimidated by economists and the words they use and, and start engaging with economics, because this, these are really, really big questions. I want feminists. I want people who are feminists and read lots of feminist books, but probably don't read that much on economics, read my book and kind of look at feminism through the economic lens and, yeah, and, and engage with that. That's what I wanted with the book. And then, of course, from there, change the world in little steps. Do you have any little steps in mind? <laughs> yes, I do. It depends on what country we're yes. going to talk about, the kind of the policies that we need. I think it's a lot about sort of valuing care work differently paying people properly who do this kind of work. I think that's tremendously important. That's also the reason why women are 70% of the world's poor are women. Is part of that is because women are in the care sector and the care sector almost everywhere is very badly paid. So that's one thing. Another thing is, you know, I mentioned paternity leave, these sort of things, sharing the care responsibilities. So in the passage that I read, it's about, you know, women have come out on the official labor market, but we haven't seen sort of men coming back into the home at a similar similar rate. And this has created this imbalance in society. And how to solve that is one of the fundamental questions for any society to ask at the moment. And, you know, then it's just on, the, on, the, on a personal level as well, kind of thinking about how much have I bought into these ideas about self-interest and rationality and kind of, if you have a free economics in your book collection, just throw it out. Don't take it so seriously. <laughs> See it as kind of abstract art or something like that, not in reality. Yeah, and, and just think about the, these issues. Because we said for so many years, we've been kind of told to leave the economy to the experts. And they kind of messed it up, didn't they? Um, so it's, it's too important to leave it to the economists, I think. But do you think that rethinking economics can work for social change within a capitalist society? Or doesn't capitalism need unpaid labor and it needs exploitation in order to survive, no matter where that comes from? Yes, sort of. Uh, I mean, that is a very, very big question. I personally think that sort of capitalism can be tamed. I think you can take... So there is tremendous power in, in the market and in the market economy. And it's very good at certain things. It's very good at sort of setting the price for tomatoes or distributing tomatoes. And it's rubbish, a lot of other things. For example, creating inequality or a balanced society or time for our children or these sort of things. And to me, it, you know, I believe that sort of the market is, you know, it's, it's a very bad master and a good servant. And it's all about kind of with policy and politics taming it and making use of it to the ends that we set as a people and the things that we want because it can create tremendous wealth and innovation and products and it can lift people out of poverty which you know we have seen on a massive scale for the last couple of decades but also inequality has gone up and that's you need to tame it you need to to work it to sort of whatever we want it to be and not the other way around where sort of we human beings are, are slaves to the market economy. That's my personal politics, but I mean, that's, that's a very big question you ask. 
Yeah. And it's difficult when you're thinking about domestic labor, especially because when you're talking about trade, you can always buy more goods and sell more goods and get ahead that way. But even if you do pay for domestic labor, there's really not a way to get ahead. There's not a way to like make a lot of money if you're being paid for domestic work. So there are different economic models altogether. Yeah, absolutely. And these sort of things should be analyzed and looked at and not just, I mean, the problem, the big problem is that this kind of work and this kind of labor is just completely taken for granted. It's a natural resource that will always be there. And that's not true. You know, we can run out of it. We can use it in different ways. And and it matters a lot to the rest of the economy, how we use it and what we do with it. And of course, it matters tremendously to, you know, for women's lives. Yeah. I really like your book, and I love the concept, and I love looking at the way that these systems of monetary value are ingrained in how we associate and ascribe value to our own lives, which is really scary, but also kind of beautiful. (laughs) Beautiful? In what way? Well, I think that if you can take it outside of that economic structure, you say that just because the economy doesn't value my labor and what I'm doing monetarily, it doesn't mean that it's worthless. Oh, okay. So, I mean, that's a very good point. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Anyway, anything else that you wanted to leave us with? Anything we didn't ask you about the book? No, I thought you were going to ask me about food. So I did all this research. (laughs) 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 So what kind of steak was it? (laughs) No, I mean, the the interesting thing is, is I found out was that they had lots of oysters and, uh, and, and lovely seafood and these sort of things, but that was only eaten by the poor because the upper classes refused to touch it. I Fools. Interesting. Yeah. Gorgeous. And apart from that, it was just game and, um, yeah, and these sort of things. And Lots the of aristocrats ate French food. Wow. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I just tried to prepare. <laughs> so you prepared all this stuff on food and you're just like, why are you asking me about that? <laughs> well, thank you so much for taking the time. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks for joining. All right. Take okay, care. Well, thank you. Bye-bye. 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 For more on The Secret Ingredient Podcast, visit our website. It's thesecretingredient.org. And please subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Leave a review if you want to while you're there. It really helps us out. Raj Patel is the author of A History of the World and Seven Cheap Things and a professor also at the LBJ School of Public Affairs. And Tom Philpot is the food and agriculture correspondent for Mother Jones Magazine. For KUT, I'm Rebecca McEnroy. Thanks for listening.